We translate for those who can't understand. We write for those who can't hear. We describe for those who can't see. Subti Subtitles and accessibility for film, television and theater. Subti.com Fred, 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 Fred. Red Film Radio, I'm Matt Nakuchi from the 64th Berlin International Film Festival. Io sono Valentina Pompili, al Tokyo International Film Festival. Soy Antonio Becker y estoy aquí con Bob. International Film Festival in Berlin. My name is Beatrice Bieden. I am Bekon Fred Film Radio. Fred, Fred, the festival experience in 23 languages. Cinephile, you're listening to the Big Fred Tuesday, Fred Film Radio's weekly show on all things cinema with a particular focus on independent filmmaking and the international film festival scene. The show is hosted and produced by yours truly, Matt Mikucci. Welcome. We've got some cool conversations coming up, including with filmmaker Serjan Kecha presenting a new documentary titled Museum of the Revolution at this year's ITFA, the International Documentary Film Festival of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Also, we will be talking with Christian Breuer, president of CKA, about the European Art House Cinema Day, which recently took place and was organized by CKA in partnership with Europa Cinemas. Uh, the event is aimed at promoting European films and movie going. So, speaking of film culture and heritage, my series highlighting the legacy of people who have left an indelible mark on the cinematic art form continues as we explore today the life and work of one of the most famous filmmakers of all time, the master of suspense himself, Alfred Hitchcock. Aside from that, more cinephile recommendations in our regular conclusive segment, Popcorn Classics. And, well, with all that being said, fire up on Audio Teeny and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air. This is the Big Fred Tuesday. Fred. Joining us at this time is filmmaker Serjan Kecha, who is presenting his new film at ITFA this year. Serjan, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Nice to, nice to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. We'll be talking about Museum of the Revolution, uh, your latest film, in a moment. But uh, first, I was curious to ask you, I mean, this is the first time we talk, so I always kind of like to find out a little bit about uh, the person I'm interviewing. Is it true you studied physics before opting for a career in documentary filmmaking? Yeah, no, I did. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like many filmmakers have done such things. <laughs> right. Yeah. But what was it, what was it that uh, uh, prompted you then to kind of... Um, you know, start a career in documentary filmmaking. Partly it was an accident. Uh, you know, that like the moment I decided that I should pause my studies of physics and, you know, try to do something else. I bumped into this ad for, you know, uh, call for applications actually for a, a documentary filmmaking workshop. That's, that was run by, um, Atelier Varon, which are, which is a French film workshop slash school, um, that was started actually by Jean Rouge. Um, uh-huh. And, um, but they, so they were visiting in Serbia and they were doing this three month long workshop and it kind of transformed my life in many ways. Um, I even met my wife there actually, um, in this workshop. Um, but you know, partly then kind of looking back years later, um, I realized, Hey, uh, my parents had a video store when I was a kid, you know? So, um, it kind of made sense that I would go into filmmaking because I watched all those films like I don't even know how many times so like uh, what documentaries too no 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 of course mm. not I mean so it was a you know relatively small video store that would only had the the big hits so I watched a lot of lot of bad movies when I was a kid um, yeah <laughs> we all do but um, you know but it's interesting the reason why I started off the conversation is because uh, uh, it kind of reminded me of a filmmaker that actually I've been kind of reading about uh, recently a lot um, I don't know if you're familiar with him and I hope that I'm pronouncing his name right Lionel uh, Rogozin uh, the um, great American filmmaker mm-hmm. he made a film called On the Boundary uh, On the Bowery that yeah. was also about marginalized people I don't know if you've seen yeah, it yeah yeah sure and he also obtained a, a degree in chemical engineering but later became one of the most uh, influential I guess documentary filmmakers uh, of America of his time yeah it's a great film and uh, yeah I mean and he, and he also had kind of an awakening it was almost like when he spoke about getting into documentary filmmaking it was like a calling that he experienced hmm. and so when when you started thinking about uh, making your own documentaries were there any themes or uh, anything that particularly interested you in exploring yeah i think memory was always like a big thing um that was sort of the 
kind of one of the first things I was interested in. I mean, again, you know, it's just a bunch of accidents. You know, I, right before applying for that workshop, I think I'd seen Sans Soleil, um, Chris Marker's film. And, you know, again, like there was somehow some DVX copy, you know, on a CD found itself somewhere. Um, and I saw that and I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then when, um, I got into the workshop, they started screening some documentaries for us. And, you know, at that time, at least in Serbia, it was 2004, you really couldn't see, you know, sort of creative documentaries. There weren't really any festivals there was one but they weren't screening like the the the, the really good stuff to be honest back then now there are a whole bunch of film festivals there you know and sort of kids these days have the opportunity to see a lot of great documentaries but back then it wasn't really so and i had a kind of picture of what a documentary is that was completely flawed actually at the time and then they started screening these films to us and I, i remember seeing a couple of films you know I don't know. I remember like the Bellows from Kosakowski, for example, they, they screened that to us. I don't know if you've seen that film ever, but like, that was like a revelation to me. I was like, you can do this. You can make a film like this. Okay. I want to do that for the rest of my life. Cool. 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 And you mentioned memory. And I think memory is an important part of your latest uh, work too, uh, Museum of the Revolution, which by the way, let me just introduce it a little bit. It sort of revolves around uh, an ambitious but never completed architectural project, uh, which is kind of mentioned in the title. And what remains of it aren't just the remnants of a building. They also feel like the remnants of uh, socialist Yugoslavia, right? Mm, yeah, definitely. And so then uh, you go on to explore uh, the lives of people who find themselves living in these remains. Yeah. But before we begin uh, talking about the, the filming process, I'm curious about the connection between these two uh, these two subjects. On the one hand, you have this abandoned kind of the, the remains of this ambitious project from the past, and then a very real situation of the lives of the people who live live in it today. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess now sort of looking at back at what I said earlier in the conversation, you know, sort of talking about Chris Marker on the one hand and then Kosakowski on the other hand, you know, so like such different filmmakers, but those were, you know, among the, these early influences, I was really interested in observational filmmaking and I am interested in observational filmmaking and kind of the lives of people now, but I'm also interested in exploring memory. And so, I think Museum of the Revolution is kind of part of partly a, a way of uh, marrying these two um, interests, um, but also in like a much much more basic way. You know, the the, the problem with these post Yugoslav societies is this kind of loss of connection between anything from the past and you know what we have in the present. And so that building, when I when I, when I first went in there, which was many years ago, um, and met some of the people who lived there, um, you know, I, I had this feeling that there's something there that could serve to link up, um, in a poetic way, perhaps not sort of a literal way, because of course the people who lived in that building, they didn't really care much about the history of it. Right. But I did, you know, so the idea was to try and create some connections. And in the end, I think for, for me, the real connection between um, that kind of lost dream of that building and, you know, the, and Yugoslavia in general, I would say, um, and the lives of the people who live there is this kind of series of like stops and starts and dreams that don't materialize. Um, and it feels like to me that the structure of, what happened with Yugoslavia is kind of reflected in, um, I mean, the lives of everyone who lives there now, but most of all, the most vulnerable people. Right. And when it comes to this documentary, you, uh, the protagonists of it, let's say, are a young girl and her mother, uh, who kind of just struggle to get by. They clean car windows for, for a little yeah. money. And then an older woman who befriends them. How did you meet them? Yeah. So I, I, I um, first went into the, that basement of the museum um, of what was supposed to be the museum of the revolution in 2014, early 2014, I think it was January or February. Um, and uh, I met, I think the first day I entered, I met the old lady Mara um, and her then partner who was, um, who had passed away um, in the, in the meantime. But so, you know, I, I, I 
met some of the people in the community there who were who were living there at the time and we had shot um an installation piece that was at the Venice Biennale of Architecture in um, 2014 in the former pavilion of Yugoslavia and now the pavilion of Serbia. So it was like a site-specific installation um, and it was about the space itself really and the ideas of the architect. Um, but inevitably, you know, I met the people who lived there. Um, and in fact, the old lady actually, she appears in that installation as well. So we became pretty close um, after that and I... You know, I continued sort of visiting her and supporting her over the years. And, you know, then uh, I think it was three years later that I met the little girl. And somehow I kept missing her when I was there. It's a very large space and, you know, just kind of, yeah, very, you know, and she was probably just very little and I hadn't even noticed, you know. But then three years later, I visited one day and I saw the two of them playing. And so for years, I was thinking there is more to make here. You know, there's something more to make here. There's something more about this space that I need to need. I need to do something more with this space. There's potential here for our, our film, but I couldn't see a narrative structure or anything like that. And then when I saw the two of them playing immediately, I thought, okay, we are definitely making a film here and it's around the two of them. And then, you know, things became more complicated as their lives became, you know, we entered their lives in a much more you know, in a much closer way than we had up until that point, kind of day to day. And uh, I think for about that one year, it was very intense. So um, we were just shooting a lot and spending a lot of time with them throughout that year. We'll be right back for more on Museum of the Revolution in a moment. Fred. We're back with Serjan Kecha, and we have been talking about his new documentary, Museum of the Revolution, we actually just talked about how you met the protagonists of your film, but I was also curious to ask you, what did they think about your idea of making a documentary about them? What was their reaction? I mean, it was like, I think it was kind of an extension of a relationship that was already there because of that installation piece. And then, you know, we kept visiting throughout the years and we'd bring a camera, you know, every time. We'd bring a camera, but most of the time we just wouldn't shoot anything, you know, we'd just like... I feel like it's always good to be honest about like one's relationship as a filmmaker to, uh, to the people you're filming. And, you know, that means also like bringing a camera when you're even just visiting. It's like, this is, this is my ultimately like, you know, how we met and this is what I'm doing. Um, but then, you know, more normally we just wouldn't shoot anything. We would just be there and, um, kind of chat. And like I said, we were sort of supporting the old lady for, for a while. And, and then, you know, it just, was felt like a natural extension of the relationship that we would just continue filming. But then spontaneously, it sort of became more and more intense. And, you know, I didn't necessarily see like what the kind of how the narrative of the film would unfold. Um, I didn't really actually. So while we were shooting, you know, I had this like wall with a, a paper edit of the film and I kept like kind of modifying the structure based on what was happening. Um you know, there are some scenes in the film that we did sort of come up with in a way which needed some organizing and some scenes which we knew we wanted and we had to wait for to just for them to unfold themselves in front of us. But most of the time it was kind of just sitting there patiently and kind of waiting for something, an energy that to, to be right, to, you know, feel like a moment to feel right that we would film, you know. Oh, so would you know when you, uh, when you should go filming and when things would happen that would be interesting enough to observe as part of this observational documentary? I mean, uh, sometimes, but more, more often it was just a lot of, you know, hanging out with the protagonists, you know, just right. a lot of hanging out with them and not filming, you know? So, like I said, we were quite involved in their lives at the time. How do you think, though, uh, I mean, did, do you think that uh, the camera had an impact on their lives? Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is always the case. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, in a way, you know, even without the camera, we were trying to actually have an impact on their lives. Um, you know, there was this kind of project that was separate from the film of trying to sort of, uh, you know, help in, in some way. Um, and, you know, that was... I think that was what made the the process of filming like really emotional. Well, uh, another thing, and I mentioned on the Bowery earlier because I find that uh, in some ways this this film uh, reminds me of that a little bit. 
And it also reminds me of that because essentially the protagonists of your, of your film, I don't know, they're, they're almost invisible to a lot of people mm-hmm. in everyday lives, I feel. They're very much marginalized. I wondered whether, I mean, do you feel that this is sort of one of the powers of cinema is to, to show us things that are there, but they're just not seen. They remain somehow invisible to us. Yeah. I think this is kind of an extreme expression of that actually, um, because, you know, that basement, not only is it this kind of remnant of this history, but it's actually smack in the middle of the city right now. It's between what used to be the central committee building of the, of the communist party. And now is the biggest shopping mall in the country. And on the other side, the government building of formerly Yugoslavia. And now, uh, now it's called the palace of Serbia. And so it, literally between these two buildings is this little park. And in this park is this, the only thing that's in this park aside from trees is this basement. And it's a huge, huge basement. And, not only do, do most people in Belgrade not know about this place, um, you know, it's 50,000 square feet uh, of space down there. You know, and there's quite a few people who have been living there. But yeah, people just don't know about the place and they don't know about the people who live there. Even though like they, you know, they run into them at, at this intersection where they where they work um, almost every day. But they don't know where they live, of course, you know, and they don't know about the kind of historical context of it either. And are you with this film also trying to address, uh, you know, the, the problems of this marginalization and perhaps uh, that these people are not are not helped enough? Well, I, I more what I'm trying to address is actually not sort of the marginalization itself, which, you know, is you know, it's there, it's been there, um, you know, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely one of the things that every film that's about underprivileged people is trying to point, point at. But I think what's happening in Belgrade now is this extreme, really fast gentrification. And some of the things that the film is pointing at, you know, with the kind of uh, present day construction that's displayed in the film. Um, and even like, you know, for example, the concert scene in the film is this, um, transformation of the city that is happening now. And the people like our protagonists are being constantly pushed out of sight. And, you know, the, the, they actually lived in different places before arriving to this basement. And that was like, in the end, the place for a refuge for them, because there were a lot of these kind of undeveloped areas around New Belgrade in particular, and then suddenly they were sort of being developed because a bank is being built here or, you know, um, whatever, some, you know, fancy of housing for rich people is being built there, et cetera. And they just get kicked out um, of where they lived. And then they go to places like this, um, like this basement. So it was kind of a place of refuge for a while. And now even there's, you know, uh, as it, as it's, displayed in the film as well there's the plan to redevelop uh, this place as well so uh, what do you feel then is uh, is more concerning if in fact you feel that it's uh, concerning at all but uh, is it the speed at which the gentrification is is happening or that it is happening at all well i mean for yeah that it is happening at all first of all because you know it's not of course the housing that's being developed is for people who are not, not, not only not the people who, you know, lived there, you know, the people who are in our film, but also not even like anyone that I know, <laughs> you know, it's some people who are, who have, you know, just a lot of money in Serbia, which is, um, you know, just that's, that's a kind of transformation that's happening now. It's not, it's not even like a sort of gender type of gentrification that exists, for example, in the UK or, um, you know, where, where like, you know, you get some artists in and then later on there will be a transformation towards like, you know, more kind of upscale housing, but it's actually just really rapid, like one step from, you know, nothing to just extremely rich people being able to live, um, in, in a place over the course of a few years. Um, and it just transforms the city. I mean, it's, uh, that's something that's been happening over the course of the last, you know, five to 10 years. Yeah. I find it very frightening as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's ominous. This is, it, I mean, like when I go to Belgrade, I feel like this, you know, this is a very ominous feeling. 
around everything. Yeah, you almost, you know, you'd almost like to think that these things just don't happen. There is the possibility that some people will assist you if you end up in a, in that type of place in which, you know, the people whose lives you, uh, you document here are obviously find themselves in. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's very frightening when you realize that no, these things definitely do happen. Yeah. And so, uh, not much of a revolution there, right? No. Um, I think, you know, partly the title kind of refers not only to the building itself, but also to, you know, the kind of these shards of this dream that are left. I mean, it's a, Serbia is right now kind of a disillusioned society, really, you know, with no project or plan in a way. Um, and, you know, I have friends who are trying to counter that, who are, you know, active in politics for, you know, trying to do something about it. But it's a it's a very, very small number of people right now. Um, What's it going to take to counter this uh, this disillusionment? <laughs> I don't know. I'm afraid to think about that. <laughs> and I, and actually, I feel this is kind of a universal struggle in a way, too. Although this this film obviously uh, observes a specific uh, uh, place in this world. I do feel that it's a global issue yeah no it is it is i think like in you know maybe for you know audiences in europe like what's important to understand and you know because there's this idea of well there's this socialist communist dream that was lost and maybe was doomed from the beginning at least you know that's a feeling at least among most western europeans i would say but i mean what really it's important to know is that you know serbia now 30 years after socialism is always under you know every uh you look at all these indexes of um inequality you know wealth or income it's always among the top three countries in europe right. in income and wealth inequality so this is where we are now after the transition well anyways we, we've run out of time uh but it was a fascinating conversation and uh, a fascinating film too <laughs> i remind our listeners it's called museum of the revolution and it will be screening at ITFA, so uh, keep an eye out uh, for it. So thanks, thanks very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Matt. Red Film Radio. Cinephile, welcome to the fourth installment of the segment on the BFT that I like to call Celluloid Heroes, which celebrates the life and legacy of people who left a significant mark on the history of the cinematic art form. This segment is essentially split into two parts. In the first part, I offer a biographical overview of the person, and in the second part... I highlight three of their works that I feel best represent them, but especially serve as a good starting point for any beginner looking to dig deep into their body of work. For today's Celluloid Hero segment, I certainly picked a celluloid hero if ever there was one. Alfred Hitchcock is one of the world's most popular filmmakers of all time. He is particularly known for working within the thriller and espionage genres, and his films are enriched by a macabre sense of humor and by his mastery of the technical means to build and maintain suspense. The Hitch was born in London in 1899. He got his degree in drawing and design at the University of London and eventually joined the film production circuit, filling virtually every role, including that of title card designer, in the silent era. Eventually, he began directing movies of his own during the silent era. The first true Hitchcockian picture was a loose adaptation of the Jack the Ripper storyline, The Lodger, from 1927, starring matinee idol Ivor Novello in his darkest role. In his formative years, Hitchcock was incredibly prolific and continued to perfect his craft. Early in his career, he continued to experiment with various genres, including comedies and melodramas. But it was clear from the beginning that the thriller was where he truly excelled. After helming the first British sound feature, 1929's Blackmail, he won international acclaim with 1934's The Man Who Knew Too Much, his first international success, with which he seemed to also pick up where the German experience had left off, and not only because the film starred Peter Lorre. In 1935, he released The 39 Steps, arguably his best film from this first British period of his filmography. The movie featured a Hitchcockian archetype, that of the innocent vacationer unwillingly drawn into an elaborate scheme hatched by a nest of spies. It also more or less inaugurated the romantic thriller, a blockbuster subgenre that remains hugely popular to this day. 
After scoring big with another film, 1938's The Lady Vanishes, Hollywood finally came calling. David O. Selznick signed him to a long-term contract and to direct his follow-up to the Civil War epic Gone with the Wind. Their first collaboration together was the Oscar-winning gothic mystery drama Rebecca from 1940. Now, Despite being constantly frustrated by the heavy censorship of the production code days, Hitchcock's move to Hollywood failed to slow him down. He eventually settled into the thriller genre, broadening its boundaries with such varied works as the lavish Suspicion from 1941 and the claustrophobic Lifeboat from 1944. In 1948, he founded his own production company. The first film from this venture, and his first movie to be shot in colour, was Rope from 1948, best remembered for its audacious attempt to make the picture look as if it had been shot in one continuous take. So the common misconception is that Hitchcock didn't like working with actors or didn't like actors at all. However, during this time, he established fruitful collaboration with uh, a number of huge stars. Uh, like Cary Grant, Grace Kelly, and James Stewart. So that must mean something. In the 50s, he began producing the popular Alfred Hitchcock Presents series on TV, each episode of which he personally introduced. Embracing the new television medium and appearing in front of the camera further helped him become a household name. This, together with the huge success of his movies, made him the world's best-known director. Despite his huge popularity with the audiences, film scholars remained reluctant to take him seriously. Two films in particular did much to change their minds, though it must be said. Rear Window from 1954 and Vertigo from 1958. The latter's exploration of identity, fantasy and compulsion make it one of the most discussed films in academic papers to this day. And in 2012, a sight and sound poll named it the greatest film ever made. In the first half of the 60s, Hitchcock directed his final three masterpieces, in my opinion. Psycho from 1960, The Birds from 1963, and Marnie from 1964. And in 1966, Francois Truffaut's expansive and detailed conversation book uh, with Hitchcock on all his movies up to that point further established the British filmmaker as a master of cinema, The book also highlighted the concept of the chase as one of vital importance in his filmmaking. But just as he gained more acclaim from uh, quote-unquote intellectuals, audience tastes changed and his commercial prowess began to decline. He released his final film, Family Plot, in 1976 and died four years later. But his legacy lives on, including in the dictionary, where the term Hitchcockian is included to represent situations involving tensions and suspense. Uh, later in the show, I will highlight three films by Hitch that I feel best represent him and serve as a great starting point for anyone who happens to be unbelievably unfamiliar with his works. But for now, time for more film conversations. So stay tuned to this episode of The Big Fred Tuesday. Fred Film Radio. Joining us at this time is Christian Broya. President of CKA, the International Confederation of Art House Cinemas. Christian, welcome to the show. Hi, hi, Matt. So, this is very exciting. We're going to be talking about the uh, CKA and the European Art House Cinema Day. Let's take things step by step first, though, because there are some people uh, listening to this who may not be familiar with CKA. So, it would be cool to kind of uh, be, be able to get an introduction to what is, in fact, the International Confederation of Art House Cinemas. Uh, would you maybe t- uh, mind telling us a little bit about it, especially its history and, and mission statement? Yes, uh, so the CKA, the International Confederation of Art House Cinemas, was founded in 1955, so quite long ago. And the mission at this times was the same kind of like, like today, because it was how to screen the best movies from all over the world in the theaters everywhere. So in the times, not everyone can remember, it was difficult for films to travel as long as it hasn't been the big uh, blockbusters. So theaters played uh, movies for weeks and even months. That was normal. And it was very expensive to, to print copies of movies. So especially for, for example, European films, it took often years that the film were screened in other countries within Europe. Today, they changed totally. We all know it's not that problem for movies to travel, to, to um, produce uh, digital masters. 
but still we have a huge influence and maybe a even bigger influence um, in this pandemic eras of the of the big studio productions and as more movies we have as more difficult is it especially for independent productions to get an awareness so this mission to bring the best movies from all our over the world to our local audience that's our work and that's what i see our colleagues often say community-based mission-driven that's kind of the agenda of cke today so we have an active role and we also see a responsibility of our cultural places our cinemas as cultural institutions in our local communities but also we are the partner of the independent filmmakers also who dare to have an open view on our world in crisis and that's kind of also the mission of the european art house cinema day Uh, you mentioned the pandemic. Obviously, this uh, uh, has had a huge impact in in the industry and in, in our, for art house cinemas. Were things challenging already before uh, the pandemic hit? I guess uh, to run cinemas were also were and will always be a risky activity, and especially if it's done by by private risk. And I guess you don't run an art house theater to, to get rich. There might be better business opportunities. But still, especially the years past the digitization of theaters were quite good development of art house theater. We see it within our network of CKE, also in the Europa Cinemas network. We have more members and The development were quite, quite stable the last year. Why? The digitization gave the cinema the opportunity, for example, to screen more movies also with an original version, especially, for example, in Germany, but also to make a, a more diversity in programming. It's easier to get copy and so reach out to the diversity within our communities, the different um, target groups to have a special programming. For example, I'm not just president of the CKE. I run 14 art house cinemas in Berlin and our most successful years uh, in 40 years of history of this company was 2019. So, um, so coexistence with especially the new players as a streaming giants that existed before. And of course, all developments, uh, the bad, but also the good were developed, uh, and accelerated during the pandemic. And we all know even now the film market is a different one compared to 2019 and it will change uh, next year. We are still mid pandemic. And we'll see uh, what will change. Maybe uh, we will know three years after the pandemic, not just the day when someone call it a freedom day. Well, when you mentioned that you uh, you had uh, 14 cinemas in Berlin, kind of got jealous because I grew up in Ireland where there's only about three art house cinemas in the entire country. <laughs> But I guess that's that is the chat that just goes to show us it's, it's such it's so challenging. Art house cinema is such a challenging thing yes. to get out there. The work of CKA definitely helps establish relationships between different countries. How many members are actually signed up to CKA at the moment? Um so it's um, over 4,000 screens and the CKE is an association of associations in country where an art house theater association exists. And we know and see in each country where we have an art house theater association, this market is growing because the theaters can better collaborate and that makes it easier. It makes easier to make common programs like we did on European Art House Cinema Day, for example, on an international base. And unfortunately, it's not each country is like France or Italy or Benelux, Scandinavia, Germany. Not each country has set much Art House Cinemas and association in cis countries. Also, single cinemas are member of the CKE. And on top, we have a lot of film festivals. They uh, collaborate with us and our members. And I guess that's the journey of an independent movie, of an art house movie. 
usually it's very important to be screened at a festival and be a success at the festival. And then the next step, the art house series gives this awareness to the movie. And if they succeed in their home country, then they can travel around the globe. And that's, I guess, what's more important even today than in 1955 when CKE was founded is this international collaboration. We'll be back to talk more about CKE and also, importantly, the European Art House Cinema Day organized in partnership with Europa Cinemas. So stay tuned. Fred. We're back with Christian Breuer, president of the CKE. And before the break, you mentioned, Christian, the European Art House Cinema Day. So let's start from the beginning. Let's start talking about it. What is the European Art House Cinema Day? So European Art House Cinema Day is um, one day where we want to celebrate the diversity of cinemas and, of course, especially art house cinemas, but also the diversity of European film and the European values. I guess it's all very linked to each other and maybe the challenge is as cinema is an everyday culture um, we often take it um, like uh, take it as granted but we all know all kind of arts and that also counts for film art isn't as granted we have um, to develop is we have to take care of all what we achieved and the European Art House Cinema Day is therefore is also to kind of celebrates this work of the filmmakers, the cinemas as cultural spots, but also celebrate together with our audience because we have a lot of people who come kind of really regular to cinemas and use this day also for very special programming. For example, um, in Germany, we, we screened... Um, the Human Voice, a short film by Pietro Almodovar with Tilda Swinden in, I guess, kind of 40 cinemas. And we had also sent discussions with both and recorded them to each cinema that participated. That's quite good because, you know, usually short films are not screened in theaters or don't have this big um, awareness. And that's possible within such a day or... For example, in one of my cinemas, we had a double feature of kind of film history and uh, with scenes from a married story from uh, Ingmar Bergman and screens uh, can competition entry Bergman Island. So also bring it there together, history and uh, the contemporary art. So when did it take place this year? So it was on... Uh, 14th of November, so it was uh, a Sunday like it's every year. And what's, I guess, the very best of is we had even more parti participating cinemas than in 2019. Right. So 2020, just a few countries could participate, as is in most countries, cinemas were closed at this time. And, and I guess it's really good. We had more admissions even than in uh, 2019. So there is an awareness. And what I like, so we try to support the cinemas and give them ideas for programming. But it's also, it's kind of free for the participating cinemas and country to develop own countries. That's also diversity of European film, not to say it's just this five or ten movies. You have to screen them. For example, just in Germany, we had over 150 European films that were screened this day. And I guess that's kind of good to celebrate our own diversity in Europe. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, uh, aside from the mixture of films, masterclasses, special guests, I noticed that there was a yes. bit of a focus on uh, young audiences too. So audience development, right? Yeah, I guess that's what we have and need is um, audience development. I guess we should invest even more in future in that kind of field. Yes, we had a lo lot of masterclasses, for example, also with Ildiko in Yedi. Um, we had se several uh, ambassadors um, for this day, like Mathieu Amalric, um, the French actor, uh, the Italian actress and director Valeria Golino. She also took part in one of the events in Napoli. Also Spanish director Jonas Trueba. But 
also old ambassadors took part in screenings in Paris and that's quite nice and what I like is that cinemas also use the digital technology so we had a lot of screenings where cinemas collaborated within a country and they had this Q&As and all cinemas participated and I guess it also shows a local audience this kind of global movement of art house. And I guess that's what the filmmakers need and we need to see. It's not just um, special interest to watch an art house movie. No, it's good movies that we want to screen. It's movie that um, talks about our history, that uh, discuss our current problems. And that's not a minority space. I like the idea that art house is kind of inclusive and not exclusive for a few well-educated uh, people. And I guess that's what we also want to celebrate on this day. Right on. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. So aside from uh, European Art House Cinema Day, obviously, uh, CKA is involved in lots of different initiatives and uh, promotes lots of different programs. What's the best way to keep up with all things CKA that you can tell us? <laughs> so uh, I guess uh, I said it before, I guess the internet collaboration is more important than ever, especially for us and especially while we live in, in ages with uh, market power monopolization by a very few players and also within our market um, the global studios have more and more influence that's okay that's the way it is but um, I guess if we bring together all these people who are interested in more since that was a universe of the big studios uh, produced for us um, then we are kind of a Milky Way within the media universe. Each single cinema might be only a tiny, tiny little star, but all together the cinemas and this movement shines bright. But of course it means also more political action. For example, right now we talk, discussed about Digital Single Act, Digital Market Act. Now we discussed with the European Commission about the better awareness and visibility of European works and that means, of course, to defend the interest um, of this uh, movie theaters, to defend the possibility for fair regulation, for fair level playing field. I guess um, that's a mission for us. And I guess it's even more important to collaborate also within ideas. And so digitization might bring a lot of risk for us, but it brings also a lot of challenges to see it as because it's much easier for us to um, collaborate, but also to share experiences, to share data. And uh, that's quite good in my opinion. And I guess the associations on a national level, but also CKE on an international level uh, has to do the service for its member. And yeah, of course, to talk with politicians who also about this work, what's done. And for this reason, I get all kind of this um, associations getting more important. And especially, so for example, if we look on the European film industry, I'm convinced it's medium-sized companies um, that dominate this market. And we won't have that easy set European player and that European player would have the same diversity. So we have to tell them either the European film market is medium-sized companies and we defense companies or it will die and then an art form will die and nobody wants this. And that's why I'm also convinced about uh, the future. And at the end of the day, if I look uh, in our audience after the second lockdown in Germany, we just start seeing is we have more young people since the second lockdown than before. And I'm pretty sure almost every one of this young audience has um, um, streaming platforms and access to streaming platforms. But people want to go to theater, want to watch movies together. And I guess mm -hmm. they expect from us to act responsible. But then I guess to watch a movie in a theater, especially in an independent theater, 
might be the most trusted source for watching a movie. And I guess that's the work we have to do. It's about audience development, but it's also about to act responsible. And it's also to discuss to who give we the floor in our cinema that we have to address the whole diversity within our community, but also that our teams have to be diverse in future. And I guess that was exactly what Art House Cinema ever stand for, for a diversity uh, that's the same in the 1950 like today. Well, this is all fascinating stuff, Christian. Uh, we could talk all day about it, <laughs> but I guess uh, you guys <laughs> do. And that's why that. I also encourage people to kind of check out uh, what you guys have going on and some of your social media as well, just as a starting point uh, to get deeper into the discussion about art house cinema in particular in Europe, but also everywhere, everywhere else too, because it's about the future of uh, of cinema in general i think so it's very important christian thank you very much for joining us it's been a pleasure yeah thank you matt for your questions <laughs> Fred. Cinephile, earlier in the show, I talked a little bit about the one and only Alfred Hitchcock, one of the most popular filmmakers in the world of all time. I will now proceed to highlight three films of his that I believe are good starting points for anyone looking to get into his works. A couple of disclaimers. I'm presuming that most people listening to this show are familiar with The Hitch and have seen a few or several of his movies. But I also think that there may be some who have not. And so this segment of the show is particularly for them and aims to highlight what I feel are the three movies that people should check out to get an idea of Hitchcock and get into a deeper exploration of his body of work. Now... This is a particularly arduous task because Hitchcock directed at least 48 movies, and at least half of them are well worth watching. Probably more than half are well worth watching, to be honest. Aside from that, I would also like to specify that these are not necessarily my favorite Hitchcock films, but the ones that I feel would serve as a good entry point to his filmography for a contemporary audience. Having said all that, here are the three films that I have decided to choose. The first one is Psycho from 1960. This is the most iconic movie that Hitchcock ever made, and that says a lot. And that shower scene remains uh, famous around the world. But the film really is a creepy roller coaster ride, entertaining on the surface and psychologically dense underneath. It's hard to underrate the impact of Psycho and the impact that it had on the film industry, the thriller and horror genre with its sophisticated two-part narrative structure and the perfect casting of Anthony Perkins as the movie's central character, Norman Bates. Also the impact that it had on film censorship of the time. All I can say is that this is essential cinephile viewing and I also believe the perfect starting point for any deep dive into the filmography of The Master of Suspense also because it holds up pretty well. Now, if Psycho perfectly embodies Hitchcock's mastery of suspense and the timelessness of his works through various cinematic techniques, I also feel the need to highlight what I feel is an even more Hitchcockian espionage movie. And to me, that honour goes to North by North West, uh, starring Cary Grant and released in 1959. Up to this point, Hitchcock had perfected his own brand of espionage thriller movie that featured an unaware outsider thrown into a conflict. Usually, uh, the conflict is between Anesta's spies. And I feel that North by Northwest is a culmination of everything he had accomplished within this narrative up to this point. Now, North by Northwest is also spectacular, action-packed. It also has a little bit of romance, romantic tension. And it features a couple of particularly ambitious sequences, including another iconic Hitchcock moment where Cary Grant is chased by a crop-dusting plane. Absolutely unreal. Obviously, I do feel that the period between 1950 and 1960 saw Hitchcock releasing some of his most enduring and uh, works that remain accessible to this day. But I also want to encourage people to go back. And especially, I want to encourage them to check out the film that really started it all and really affirmed Hitchcock's strong sense of style and mastery of suspense. Which is why my third pick for this segment is what is considered by Manny as the first Hitchcockian movie. 
The Lodger, a story of the London fog, a silent film from 1927, freely inspired by the sensational myth of Jack the Ripper. To create its incredible atmosphere, Hitchcock borrowed many techniques of the German expressionists and made them his own. But it's also the casting of matinee idol Ivor Novello in the ambivalent leading role of the film as a serial killer suspect who cannot clear his name that introduced a type of three-dimensionality to Hitchcock's works that continues all throughout his career and makes his movies fascinating beyond surface level. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I could just as easily have chosen, you know, The 39 Steps, Rear Window, Vertigo, or even Lifeboat, or The Criminally Underrated I Confess, The Man Who Knew Too Much. I mean, the list goes on. But I do feel that the three movies I chose for this list are solid choices nonetheless. So get watching them soon, but not just yet, because we've got more to go on this very episode of the Big Fred Tuesday. Fred Film Radio. Cinephile, we're just about ready to wrap things up on this episode of the Big Fred Tuesday. But as if those Hitchcock recommendations from earlier were not enough, here's more recommendations for cinephile viewing coming at you in a new installment of our recurrent segment, Popcorn Classics. Now, the film that I chose to highlight for today's show is actually an anomaly in that it's an animated short film from 1953 by Warner Brothers and part of the popular Merry Melody series. Duck Amok may in fact be one of the most famous and acclaimed installment of this animated series due to its surrealist and even Brechtian undertones. This short stars the popular character Daffy Duck, voiced as ever by the legendary man of a thousand voices, Mel Blanc. And essentially it finds him tormented by an unseen, mischievous animator who constantly changes Daffy's locations, clothing, voice, physical appearance, and even shape. It even has a really cool final twist. Now, the reason why I find this cartoon so interesting, aside from the fact that I am a big fan of the Murray Melodies series at large, because they are absolutely hilarious and really picked up where the slapstick comedians of old left off, uh, is because it's really a creative representation of a writer's block. It also includes many ambitious elements, from self-referential humor to breaking the fourth wall. It's an absolute riot. And for this reason and more, it's definitely a noteworthy addition to our Popcorn Classics segment. So I will give Duck Amok, directed by Chuck Jones, five bags of popcorn and five cups of soda, as well as five bagfuls of pencils with eraser tops. And that's all for this episode of the Big Fred Tuesday. Join me again next week right here on Fred.fm. In the meantime, check out all our content across all our various channels and in multiple languages as well. Till the next time, this is Matt McCucci signing off. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay strong, stay cinephile, and stay tuned to Fred Film Radio, the Festival Insider. Fred, 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 Fred. This is Cristiana Palmieri for Fred Film Radio from the Sydney Film Festival. My name is Roberto Pomberg here on Fred Film Radio, the Festival Insider. Io sono Laura Buffa e questa è una nuova puntata di Fred Mag. Mein Name ist Beatrice Bieden und ich spreche mit Andreas Kuchowska. Fred, Fred, the Festival Experience in 23 languages. Fred Film Radio, 24-7 on Fred.fm and smartphone apps.